everybody, and welcome to another edition of Entrepreneur Rx, where we help healthcare professionals own their future. Hey, everybody, welcome back to Entrepreneurs Rx. Today, I'm really excited to have uh, on our podcast a gentleman named Bobby Green, who is an oncologist, and he's the, you're the first oncologist I've interviewed. And it's funny, when I think of oncologists, you guys are all, and women are all entrepreneurial. It's kind of a I didn't even know this about oncologists, but uh, welcome to the podcast. I'm really excited to talk about it. Great. Thanks, John. I'm thrilled to be here. Really appreciate you taking the time. Okay. So why are oncologists entrepreneurial now? I never would have thought that was an entrepreneurial crowd. You know, I think it's a great question. I think um, part of the reason, especially in the community oncology space, which is where I come from, is building an oncology practice is in many ways like running a small business that becomes a big business pretty quickly because it's not only the delivery of care you have to deal with the infusional side of it you know building an infusion center and having to deal with inventory lots of ancillaries come in so i think in a lot of ways being a community oncologist especially you know if you go back the past 20 25 years which is my career if you wanted to have a successful practice in that space you had to be a little bit um entrepreneurial and that's really how i started and where i sort of got the bug you i mean if you want to be a successful oncologist these days you have to you have to have an infusion center for it to really make sense financially yeah i mean i think you have to have it it's important financially but it's also from a clinical delivery standpoint you know infusion and taking care of patients are so intricately related to each other that whether you're an independent practice or you know an academic medical center or a hospital, those things really do need to be co-located. And it, it's critically important that, um, you know, I believe this very, very strongly that the oncology practice, regardless of the setting, does have really control over that. Because at the end of the day, when you order someone to go in for an infusion, the person who ought to be responsible to make sure that that therapy is there and that that therapy is delivered successfully ought to be the oncologist. Yeah, you've got to be you've got to be bought in. It's got to be contiguous. It yeah. sounds like. Yep. Sorry. So good. Now we've got that out of the way. So back up. How did you like when was the when was the healthcare bug? My dad's a physician, um, was an orthopedic surgeon. Um, and so, you know, I was one of those kids who always sort of grew up thinking, I'm going to be a doctor. I'm going to be a doctor. Got to college, was pre-med. And I spent about two or three years in college thinking, wow, do I really want to do this? I took a year off um, between um, college and med school, really thought about things a lot, wanted to make sure that I did it. But it ultimately came back to, you know, just really loving the science and the human interaction part of it, which I think are ultimately what um, what drove me. Now, it's funny. It seems like nowadays, so I end up mentoring a lot of pre-med kids and I always laugh. I said, hey, I could never compete with any of you. So I'm glad I got in when I did. And two, most of them take a gap year. So you were like, you were like setting the gap year curve. There wasn't, people weren't doing gap years when, when you were doing this. No, it was, people thought I was crazy, um, especially my parents, but we got beyond that. Well, how did you spend your gap year? Did you trip backpack around the world sort of gap year? No, it was definitely not that romantic. I um, worked on Capitol Hill uh, for um, a U.S. Senator named Terry Sanford, who is a wonderful man, had been governor of North Carolina in the early 1960s, was one of the only Southern Democrats at the time who was anti-segregation, pro-integration, pro-civil rights. That's my next question. Um, and, and then went on, became um, president of uh, Duke University, which is where I went to college, which was where I had my first interaction with him and then ran for U.S. Senate and was U.S. Senator from, I think, 86 to 92. Um, and I worked up in his office for the year I took off. Wow, that's that's very cool. So he was he was he's anti the right stuff. That's awesome. He, 
Exactly. Exactly. So be a hard time to do that. It was a very, very hard time and a very courageous um, guy. He was also, I mean, I think most people now um, have heard about the Research Triangle Park um, that is Durham, Chapel Hill and and Raleigh. Um, And when he was governor, he really kicked that off. So, wow, what a progressive guy. That's pretty awesome. Okay, so you did that for a year. You went to Duke Medical School then. And then why oncology? Did your dad say like, dude, are you kidding? Orthopedics is the way to go. Well, he did say that. And then I did an ortho rotation. And, you know, I thought in the list of the sort of hundred things I'd like to do, ortho was very low on the low on the list, including some non-medicine things that were above it. I, you know, I say that with, you know, some of my best friends from medical school or orthopedic surgeons at this time. So, um, but uh, yeah, it just wasn't, uh, it wasn't for me and I didn't have the technical skills to do it either. You know, I, I sort of, when I, thought about oncology. And it's interesting because sort of the three things that I highlighted and, you know, you never know what's going to turn out to to be the right decision, but I liked the human interaction part. Like I, you know, sort of knew I wanted to develop relationships with patients and I thought oncology was a good place to do that. I thought that it would be a good profession. The treatments were likely to change over time and that there were, you know, it was sort of the cusp of lots of advancements in oncology. So I thought, well, this is something where, you know, I'm going to be treating people differently in three years or five years than than I am today. And then lastly, there's something very concrete about cancer and especially, um, you know, solid tumor oncology. You know, you most of the time have a cancer or you don't, you can treat a cancer, you can watch it shrink, you can watch it go away. There's something that I think is very concrete and tangible, which which I liked as well. And those three things really panned out for me. I mean, I think all oncologists have this, lots of physicians have this, but, you know, the letter, uh, the drawer of letters that I kept in my office when I was a full-time clinician for a year, I mean, you know, one of them would have been enough to like make my career from an emotional standpoint. And, you know, it was filled with those letters. So amazing relationships with people with cancer, you know, in oncology, if you practice, if you practice like you did six months before, you're probably committing malpractice. It's constantly evolving and constantly changing. So that really came through. And I did like the concreteness of it. And that was also proven, as you know, um, especially in the community space, most people do both oncology and hematology specifically benign hematology. Benign hematology is much more abstract. I would say it's much intellectually harder and more difficult. And I always didn't like it. <laughs> so um, so the sort of concrete part of oncology really um, always continued to, to resonate with me. So this is probably a naive question, particularly considering the fact that I'm in medicine. Do you do a heme-onc fellowship or is it heme or onc? So most places it's combined. A lot of places give you the option of to do one or the other. And at most, you know, academic centers, you are either doing some form of solid tumor oncology, some form of malignant hematology. So the leukemias or the lymphomas or benign hematology, coagulation defects, um, things like that, uh, platelet defects, those kinds of things. In the community, I would say anecdotally, but based on my experience, most people do both. You know, there's some people who specialize, um, but for the most part, people do both. So, well, interesting. So, how long were you in internal medicine residency before you said oncology is my thing, or did you know that going in? No, I'm sort of like, um, I finished med school, not sure what I wanted to do. And so the default was to go into internal med- I mean, internal medicine often, if you're not sure what you want to do, because you have some more flexibility, you can do internal medicine or you can do one of the internal medicine subspecialties. I think I probably figured out by the end of my um, second year um, that I wanted to do it. 
you know, again, I think my experience with, I don't have the technical skills to be um, an orthopedic surgeon also translated into, I don't have the technical skills to be an interventional cardiologist or a gastroenterologist. I just was not procedure oriented. So I had my sort of book of the non-interventional uh, internal medicine subspecialties and oncology was when I really gravitated to. Very cool. Okay. So post-residency, give us a timeline between post-residency and time, no pun intended, but between your, uh, and your current venture. Yeah. So I, um, so one of the interesting things I found when I went into practice is I love taking care of patients, but I, I also sort of knew early on that I wanted to try to do something different. And I didn't actually know that going in. I thought I'll start practicing and I'll, you know, do what my dad did, which was be a clinician for 35 years and I'll do that full time. And I just sort of early on decided that there were other things that I wanted to do alongside that. And I didn't really know what that was. We were part of a um, hospital practice when I joined in 1999 that was owned by a not-for-profit hospital system. Very shortly after I arrived, that hospital got bought by a for-profit hospital system. Sounds um, like HCA. The other big ah, got it. Okay. hospital system. Got it. I knew it was, it was, a, 50, it was a 50% shot. <laughs> But we got bought and about a year later, we went out on our own. Um, and it was actually very um, fortuitous for me because I'd only been out um, about two years, but I had the opportunity um, with two of my other colleagues to run this, you know, 13 person medical oncology practice. Um, and that was sort of one of the outlets and entrepreneurial things going back to how do you, you know, build an oncology practice that I, um, that I was, you know, was lucky enough to be able to do. And over the course of the next, that was about 2002, 2003, over the course of the next decade, we built a radiation center, we built an imaging center, we grew the practice, we brought in some um, subspecialists to the practice. And that was really exciting and interesting to me. And in addition to that, we were part of a network of about 20 oncology practices that were just starting to think about how to do interesting things with data. And it was when EHRs were becoming a thing and how do you pull together data from different sources and make it useful for measuring quality, for enrolling patients on clinical trials, those types of things. And I spent a lot of time working with that network and started to think, I like this space a lot, still didn't know what to do with it. But I, I knew at this point I was ready to do something, you know, I was still mostly a full-time clinician and, you know, I'd been doing that now for like 12 or 13 years. And at this point I knew I wanted to do something different, didn't know um, what exactly that was. And through some work I was doing, I met Time Care's co-founder, my co-founder, Robin Shaw, who was an early employee at this company called Flatiron Health. Um, I met him along with Flatiron's co-founders. And, you know, I haven't had that many light bulb moments in my life, but I remember that first conversation I had with them is I had been thinking about what I wanted to do. And I thought, that's what I want to do. I want to go there. And the story I tell most people is they recruited me really hard for a year and a half. The true story is I told them I want to come work with you guys and, uh, and then started working at this company, Flatiron Health, which was a healthcare technology company based in New York City in the summer of 2014. So for the seven-year period that I was at Flatiron, I still lived here in South Florida. I saw patients one day a week, but I commuted to New York almost every week. You know, asterisk, I have an incredibly uh, supportive and understanding uh, wife and children to allow me to do that. But I did that for seven years um, leading up um, until time care. And then, okay, so what, what was your role at Flatiron? Um, so it varied. The last about two years I was there, I was chief medical officer. And then before um, that, what did you do? How did you how did you get, yeah. get into that role? 
So I was, for the bulk of my time, mostly focused on um, the clinician, the provider facing side of the organization, a lot of which was around our building um, our electronic uh, medical record and, and building and leading the medical team that supported that, as well as a lot of the work that we were doing in clinical trials. The job, I mean, when I joined Flatiron, there were 30-something people there. Um, the job started out very much um, as an individual contributor and sitting with engineers, looking at data that we were trying to put together, talking to docs about the electronic health record, doing a fair amount of sales um, of the electronic health record, basically anything they needed me to do, I both did and was was willing to do. Very good. Okay, so then you're, you're, you're going back and forth in New York. The pandemic hitch, which seems like the timing was about dead on. Is that when you decided to do time? Yeah. So the pandemic hit, I, you know, was working from home um, for about a year, about a year. And, you know, Robin, who had been at, at Flatiron with me, he'd left a couple years before, but especially in a lot of the early days, we had thought a lot about value-based care um, and about a lot of the things that sort of weren't addressed in cancer clinics. And it wasn't something that, you know, ever really made sense in what we were doing at Flatiron to focus on, but it was, you know, you know, the sort of unfinished business you feel at certain parts of your career where you've done things and you feel like, no, we really wanted to do that. So we'd always had these conversations. We want to do something in this space. And then what's interesting, we both had this sort of parallel experience of, and this still, it's happened to me my whole career pretty much. And it still happens to me at least on a weekly basis where you get these phone calls or texts or emails from sometimes people I know well, sometimes people who are friends of friends, and sometimes people who have like a connection that I'm not even sure of, but they've either been diagnosed with a new cancer or they have a CAT scan that showed a lung mass or something has happened in the cancer space and they're in this limbo period. They haven't seen an oncologist yet. They're not sure how to deal with it. The appointment might not be for two weeks to have the biopsy that they were told they needed. They don't know, do I have cancer? If I have cancer, is it a small curable cancer? Is it a cancer that's likely to be life-threatening? And it's not the, it, you know, the answers can sometimes be scary, but the scariest thing is when you don't know anything. And so you're left with all of this uncertainty and, you know, I can pick up the phone or, or, or send someone an email and, you know, spend a couple minutes of time explaining something or helping someone understand, oh, you need to see a medical oncologist. And, you know, I've been doing this a long time. I know medical oncologists in lots of places in the country. And so most of the time I can either connect directly with someone or someone else to get someone in for an appointment quickly. Um, I can answer that question. Oh, if you have this thing in your lung, it might be cancer. It might not. If it's cancer, here's what will happen. And the amount of gratitude, you know, you get from these sort of few minutes that you spend with someone is enormous. And I actually love doing it. At the same time, you shouldn't have to know me or know someone who's connected or who's an insider in order to get that kind of care. So that's, that was sort of the core idea that led to time care. And then you can sort of extrapolate that, you know, what I just sort of described was what you could call the peridiagnostic period of someone right at the beginning of, of, of a cancer diagnosis or a concern for cancer. There are multiple other places along the cancer journey where things break down, despite the fact that people are getting cared for in really good practices by really good doctors and receiving the right care, things break down. And that's what we were 
trying to address with this navigation platform. That's really cool. I, you know, I, I think all physicians listening to this have the same experience that I do and clearly you do. I get calls all the time from people in this, your phraseology is perfect, this periodiagnostic time where you're like, I'm lost and I don't know where to go. I can't get into my PCP and I can't go to an oncologist or whoever without a PCP referral. What do I do? And so you're right. For us, it takes us a few minutes, a few phone calls, and it's like, oh, we've got you. And then you right. point them in the right direction. And it's like, the, you know, it's like behind the wizard. It's like the, you know, the wizard behind the curtain. But for them, it's like, oh my God, you saved my life. I'm like, no, yeah. I just made a few phone calls to people exactly. like, you know, Dr. Green here, who I know will get you fixed up because he's a great, he's a rock star. But so th- this is really cool because, you know, I, the people I see in the emergency department, I always, this it's always the same scenario, 55 years old, driving their car down the street and they have a first time seizure. You drink a lot. No, I hardly ever drink. Taking like benzodiazepines, like Valium and Jaquit? No. Crap. I bet you've got a glioblastoma. And almost always have a glioblastoma. And so then you go ahead and have to talk to them about this, what you know, because, you know, the MRs are hard to miss. And it looks, it's just this awful looking tumor, as you all know. And you went and thought to them and said, well, you know, it could be this and it could, could be this. And, but we've got to do some other stuff to you. And I'm going to send you somebody a lot smarter than I am. I work at a place that's as rock star neurosurgeons. But in my back of my mind, I'm going, crap, you've got a glioblastoma and this is yeah. not going to be a good outcome. And so these yeah. poor folks are left in, like in the nature you just described, like I'm terrified. It's so scary. And yeah, and you know, you, as you know, I mean, even in that scenario, like how many times do people get admitted to the hospital just because you're worried if you don't admit them, the workup's going to take forever and they're not exactly. going to get the right care. Like that, that makes no sense, right? So, Or they have um, no insurance. And then I'm like, yeah. well, you probably don't need to be admitted, but I know if you're not admitted, you're going to fall through the cracks for six months. Yeah. And that little fluid in your belly and that weird thing on your ovary, and I hate ovarian cancer, this may be ovarian cancer, I'm going to admit you because yep. screw the money, we're gonna, we'll figure this wow. out. So yeah, it's tough. All right, why'd you pick the name Time? Because I instantly go to, you know, uh, Crosby, you know uh, Simon and Garfunkel, and, uh, and I love that album and song. So why Time? Yeah, my, my daughter has taken to playing Scarborough Fair on the uh, guitar now and throws in the word care after time <laughs> yeah, when, when, when she sings it. Um, so not to confuse people about the spelling. Um, so. Time has sort of many meanings, and one of them is is courage. That was sort of what we thought was, you know, we thought it was appropriate um, and a nice sort of symbol. I, I will tell you what's interesting, and I wish I could tell you this was intentional, um, but it really wasn't. In the navigation work that we've done, there are so many circumstances where you realize one of the core things that we're able to offer people is T-I-M-E time. Yeah. And, you know, everyone's busy. Practices are crazy, you know, taking care of patients. And sometimes, you know, what people just need is a little bit of time that they might not be getting anywhere. So that sort of play on words has been really, um, really impactful and nice. And then, you know, we have all sorts of internal jokes where people use the word time, you know, both ways. So, oh, yeah. I, yeah. I'd be, I'd be constantly doing it. Okay. So is time practice agnostic? Like, can I sign up for time in Phoenix, Arizona? even though my oncologist is out here? It is. So time care right now, we are practice agnostic, but the way we're working is managing populations, starting with health plans. So we contract with health plans, managing their their member population. And I would just say at no cost to the person with cancer, 
with also plans in the probably near future to be having conversations with employers. We think there's a you know really nice opportunity and way we can help there, as well as with risk-taking providers. As you know, that's a, a bigger and bigger thing where we also think we can add value. So it's through health plan partnerships, at least um, at least right now. So so right now you don't do any at-risk contracting, correct? But that's in the future. It is, and we're um, hopefully within the next, you know, or I would say likely within the next three to four months, we'll have a couple of risk-based contracts um, in place. I, you know, I think across the board, the value prop from a health plan perspective is, you know, the patient experience I think is important and that's clearly there in helping people get better care. But there's also sort of a strong belief, and this is, you know, really starting to bear out in our um, first partnership um, that you can actually drive down costs and drive higher value as well, which is obviously important to to multiple stakeholders. Well, yeah, you know, we always, you know, in emergency medicine, and you, you know, you probably have your own perspective on this, but someone shows up, they're a couple of days post chemo treatment, you know, unless they stub their toe, they're probably going to get admitted because they feel yeah. off or their white counts are low, they're immunocompromised. We don't have any results back yet that like cultures that are meaningful. So we're like, I'm not sending you home with a white count of 0.6 and you may have nothing, but I'm not going to send you home. If you can prevent those ED admissions from ED, which may not pan out to be anything, you know, you prevent a couple of those and it's, you made a huge impact. A hundred percent. And, you know, listen, there's a good amount of data that, you know, and if you um, define care navigation broadly, that there are a lot of interventions that can really have impact um, on that. Everything from, you know, trying to engage patients proactively and assess symptoms for you, so you find symptoms before they get bad to honestly something as simple as being a resource that when someone hits the emergency department, you know, if you're in the ED seeing a patient who you're worried about, if you can talk to someone who says, I'm going to make sure that they see their oncologist at nine o'clock tomorrow morning and they're going to understand what to do. You're going to have a lot more comfort with the decision not to admit them. Totally so. true. And, you know, something you said a little bit ago, which perked my ears up, is you said, you know, if you're still practicing like you were three, you know, three to six months ago, you're probably committing malpractice. Emergency medicine is not moving quite that fast at all. <laughs> or maybe it's just me that's not moving quite that fast. But it really strikes me as interesting because. If you're saying that, who's an expert in the field, there is no way in hell I'm going to keep up with it. And so what people are coming in with, I've probably never heard of. I've probably heard of the cancer, I hope, but I've certainly probably not heard of the treatment. Right. And you definitely can't spell it. Yeah, so. definitely not spell it. <laughs> so, okay. So another question for you. So I'm a, um, you know, I'm a kind of a big life prolongation sort of advocate. I've been doing this for my, you know, taking medications, some of this myself for now years and years and years and including you in all sorts of genetic studies. Now, you know, I have this belief is, you know, we all have cancer floating around in our body right now that our T cells are just gobbling up because they recognize it as foreign. But are we at the point yet where you join a health plan, they send you to get this pharmacogenetic testing or genetic testing that says, look, John, you have a predilection for X. We're going to hook you up with time care because now they're going to help you prevent X from happening or monitor X. So in case it does happen, they are on it like a pit bull on a poodle. Are we anywhere near there yet? I think we're, I don't know if near is the right word, John, but I think we're definitely heading in that direction. Um, One of the sort of really exciting areas um, of science advancement right now, and it's an area where we've had a lot of conversations is in the early cancer detection, cancer screening blood tests. So there are a number of um, um, assays and companies in this space 
Yeah. And like, I think you can sort of think about the liquid biopsy in, in two settings. One is liquid biopsies to look for genomic alterations in people known to have cancer to look for targets. And then the technology that is, you know, I'm a smoker. I know I'm at risk for lung cancer. No one's ever told me I have lung cancer or colon cancer or, you know, pick your disease. Can you do a blood test and maybe tell me that I have a cancer earlier than you would have been able to detect it otherwise? And there's a lot of, you know, active research in this space. And, you know, as you can imagine, trying to iron out how do you get the sensitivity and the specificity, the false positive rates and the false negatives of these tests, rates of these tests in a place that, you know, really makes them useful for the right population. But we 100% see a role um, for time care there, as you said, in helping people understand the implications of those tests, navigate what the right follow-up is, and when people end up having cancer, getting them to the right place. And again, we've had a bunch of discussions. It's not something we're, we're doing yet. We think there's a good opportunity there. And, and I do think you know, the next step before that is, well, there's early detection and then there's prevention. And I think that's something that's you know, really interesting and, and really important as well. So that's really cool. So, and so I'm with you on the prevention, but I, I think despite our provider, healthcare physicians and providers' best efforts, people will still do things like smoke that set them up for cancer. It's just the nature of, it's the nature of humans, I think. So if you take that as a given, then wouldn't it be a cool business model, which sounds like you're headed there to say, listen, join us either through your health plan or individually, we will hook you up with a test, a liquid biopsy or Cologuard or what have you. And we'll, cause you know, is it true that we're all gonna, if we live long enough, we're all gonna get cancer. It's just a matter of when and where, is that, is that a fair statement? Um, I would say it depends, but given that the risk of cancer keeps going up as you get older, if not everyone, like lots of yeah. people, I mean, you know, even in like there are autopsy studies in men that a very high percentage of men have prostate cancer when they die. And then the other question is, you know, there are cancers that matter um, and then there are cancers that don't matter. Um, you know, a cancer only matters if it's going to cause you a problem in your life expectancy. Right. Um, you know, if someone finds you had prostate cancer at an autopsy and you never knew you had it, then it's sort of like you never had it. Right. So exactly. But, but it seems like there's a role for literally exactly what you're doing, like you said, but one step earlier, maybe two steps with prevention, but one step earlier with the OK, now I know I've got the BRCA gene or now I know I've got X predisposition oh. to whatever cancer it is. What can I do to either mitigate it or prevent it or yes. get it early? I think that's right. I think one of the practical impediments to building a business in that space is a function of what our health insurance looks like, right? So if you're a Medicare patient, for the most part, Medicare is going to be responsible for you for the rest of your life. If you have a commercial plan from your employer and your commercial plan knows that, well, most people on my plan switch jobs every couple of years and switch on to a new insurance, you know, how much and, you know, it becomes a financial thing, but I also understand it. If I'm a health plan, how much do I want to spend preventing things that are going to benefit someone's health plan eight years from now, which isn't going to be mine? Yes, yeah, so I see that. Yeah. yeah. And yeah, we have I, to think about how do you how do you align those things? Right. Yeah. So why would um, I diagnose you now when 20 years from now it's going to be the, the outcome is going to be bad if you don't. Yeah. treat it? Um, that's on you, not on us. So, yeah, I get yeah. it. Interesting. So, you think part of it's going to come down to the how accessible and how inexpensive this genetic testing is becoming. So people would say, look, I'm going to spend 500 bucks, get this test done. At least I'll, I don't care if the health on pays for or not, but at least I'll know what I better be on the lookout for in the future. 
I mean, if you offered that service through, through time, do you think you'd have this population of patients that just waiting to pick up? Well, they're not waiting to, they never want to, but they, they know you're there when they need them. Yeah, I do. I think that the things that ultimately drive this, you know, outside of insurance reimbursement is the cost but also the impact of the test. So if you have a screening test that causes lots of false positives and leads to lots of interventions that can potentially cause harm, you want the net to be a benefit and not a harm, right? So screening a healthy 20-year-old for cancer, it's pretty tough probably to get an assay that's going to be helpful there. But right. for lots of populations, I think we're going to we're going to see data, hopefully, that's going to that, where that's going to pan out. Interesting. Well, it's like the old house of God. If you don't take a temperature, you can't find a fever. And yep. so the question is, yep. when you start taking a temperature, yeah, you know, do you do yeah. it at 20? Probably not. You know, a lot of not a lot of success. But if you do it at 60, yeah, maybe there's some early detection stuff you can you can pick up. Yeah. And if you think about even, you know, the colon cancer landscape or the lung cancer landscape, you know, how do you find it, the right test in the right population is is, is going to be key. And, you know, the exciting things are there are a lot of, you know, really exciting, well-funded companies doing great science in this space. And, you know, we're we're excited to figure out how to partner there. So what's the next iteration of time? Where, where are y'all headed? So, you know, in the, I would say short to medium term, continuing to engage with new health plans. I think that's a, um, something that we're really excited about as well as other entities, as I said, risk-bearing providers or as well as employers, really over time, being able to continually demonstrate not only that the patient experience is getting better, but continue to show that value on keeping people out of the hospital, making sure that people, you know, get gold concordant care at the end of life. You know, really think of us, John, as a value-based oncology solution with a core focus on navigation, but really thinking holistically um, about this. And how do you partner with practices as well as with health plans in order to, you know, people have been talking about value-based care for a long time. There are pockets of value-based care, but at the end of the day, most cancer patients aren't in value-based arrangements. And we want to change that and really through these partnerships and through the technology platform that we're building, be able to do that. And on the tech side, I think part of this is the technology that we're building to enable our care team. So our oncology nurses and our lay health workers to really effectively and efficiently interact with people with cancer, but also to be able to do it, whether it's on the phone for someone who only has a landline, but also with technology for people who are able to do that. And whether that is through texting or other things, that sort of ability to interact asynchronously, to be able to collect patient reported outcomes from people at scale, those things are all critically important. And that's really the direction um, that we're moving and that we're um, excited about. Really a technology-based, value-based care oncology um, solution that's really focused on the patient. So it seems like there's a huge AI component for this where you can have these bot interactions via text message using AI-driven, I don't want to say algorithm, but AI-driven assessments that ultimately may or may not you end up with a human or are you really human focused because that's what oncology patients need? John, you're definitely going to get me in trouble because when I start talking about AI, my engineering and data science colleagues make fun of me, but I'm going to, I'm going to do it anyway. And it, it's a great question. So it's both. So we do think that AI and machine learning, these are all sort of critically important parts for how do we 
you know, as just one example, stratify people with cancer, stratify our members to understand who's going to be at high risk and what's the right intervention and with a system that can learn and refine that and do that better over time. And whether it's through bots and automatic responses, like those are going to be critically important. But, you know, one of our really core beliefs is that you can't do this with technology alone, that you need technology to enable people. And that's really why we have this hybrid uh, model. Yeah, I agree with you, particularly for cancer patients. They don't want to be texting when they're vomiting. They want to be able to pick up the phone and call somebody. A hundred percent. How scalable is this? Because it seems like it's almost by definition, like you just alluded to it, it has to be a high touch, warm embrace sort of business. Is it scalable? And then if so, what's, do you have an exit strategy for this or is this going to be a long, kind of a long-term play? Um, So I answer part two first. I mean, we view this as a long-term play. Um, There's, we've done a ton and there's a ton more to do. And I think we're all loving what we're doing and, you know, want to build this into a, a successful and impactful company. So yeah, we think it's scalable. I mean, listen, I think inherently um, the services component always makes things harder to scale, but we think it's scalable for a couple of reasons. One is there's a ton of inefficiency that goes on in the care navigation process in general. So what we're building, and we've already seen you know, from our internal metrics, clearly the ability for technology to enhance the efficiency of care navigators um, and to make them more effective and for them to be able to manage more members. There's also, just again, as another example, not everyone needs the high touch. And there are some people who you can do everything that you need to do through texting. And a lot of that can be automated. So another sort of key component of scalability here is how do you identify the people who need the high touch and give that to them in the most efficient way possible? And while at the same time, how do you engage lots of other people who may not need that? And that's and that's really the the, the balance here. So. so are you working with any research organizations that say, listen, you have this population of patients who have cancer. Can you segregate them out and give us access to those patients that fit this criteria with this cancer so we can put them in this study? Because that seems like it'd be very powerful. It's a great question. And it is, and it's something we've sort of had active discussions around or actually building out the team and the hypothesis around that. Um, I spent a lot of time in my last role thinking about how to increase clinical trial accrual. And one of the sort of take-homes for me is that directly engaging the patient and making the patient their own advocate for that while being able to layer on the technology that allows you to identify what might they be eligible for that is what I think is going to be a key component to driving increased clinical trial accrual, which I think in general, and COVID has clearly taught us this, clinical trial accrual sort of across the medical spectrum is important and just so critical um, in oncology because it's how we, you know, the, the landscape's totally transformed. Um, and it's because of people who've been willing to go on clinical trials. So. Totally. Have you had to go out and raise money or is this all uh, internally funded? Um, we have raised a round of money. We completed our first raise, I think it announced in October and uh, it's exciting. And, you know, we have a nice runway and a lot of resources to build lots of incredible things. So um, very good. Well, congratulations. Well, Bobby, this has been awesome. Where can people find out more about time and more about you? Find out time. We are at um, timecare.com. So they can definitely find us there. We're on Twitter um, at timecares. Um, we have an Instagram account. I'm not um, savvy enough to know how to tell you about there, but would love to love to hear from you. And I, the Twitter is at Time Cares. There's an S at the end of it. At Time um, Cares, got it. 
Yeah. Someone else took at time care. That's so if that person wants to give us that Twitter handle, we're open to taking that too. So who would have time care spelled? I mean, come on. I don't know. I'm with yeah. you. So yeah, timecare.com will get you there too. So very good. Well, this has been amazing. We'll have everything in the show notes for folks who want to contact you and look up more about time care. But hey, first off, thanks for all this, what you're doing for patients with cancer, because clearly they need to be embraced. That's awesome. Thank you, John. I appreciate it. And thank you for taking the time. We, uh, it, was, it was great chatting. Thanks, folks. Thanks for another great podcast of Entrepreneur RX. We'll have everything in the show notes. And until I see you again, have a great and safe week. Thanks. Thanks for listening to another great edition of Entrepreneur RX. To find out how to start a business and help secure your future, go to johnshufeltmd.com. Thanks for listening.